waiting. What is it about waiting for things to happen? It's so inconvenient. Waiting is just, it's painful. It's a part of life, I guess. And here I am, Joab, commander of King David's royal army. And I'm waiting by myself in a room next door to the king's palace. I've been summoned from the battlefield for what I have been told is a very important meeting with the king himself, David. How did I actually get to be here, waiting? Well, it all began on the battlefield. We were in conflict with the Ammonites, and we were approaching the city of Rabbah, and we managed to get the Ammonites onto the back foot, thanks to my troops that were carrying out my carefully crafted plan. And to be honest, I'm not surprised by the success that we had. I had carefully mapped out all the things that we needed to do to be able to capture Rabbah. I knew that that fort controlling their water supply, that fort was their weak point. Capture that water supply, control that, and it was only a matter of time before the entire city would have to surrender. As commander of King David's army, I, Joab, have had my fair share of military challenges. But you know what? I've never lost a battle. Under my watch, the Israelite army has defeated and captured many cities. We've had great success on the battlefront. As David's nephew, my mother, Zariah, told me much about her brother, and I've been very fortunate to be able to counsel the king on many major decisions, and not just concerning warfare, mind you. For all I know, maybe I'm waiting here in this room for yet another one of those important council meetings with the king himself. Anyhow, back to that question of how I got here to be waiting. Well, it was springtime, and that means that it was wartime. You see, spring marks the end of the rainy season. It means more favourable roads to travel on. It means more favourable roads for my troops and for my horses. It means more availability of food. Springtime is wartime. And it would have been good for me to have my king alongside me as we marched on into battle. But for reasons unknown to me, David opted to stay home and remain in Jerusalem. On one hand, it was an odd decision because kings are the ones who lead their troops and their armies into battle. And some said, rightfully so, that David should have been with us, to, at least to start our military campaign. On the other hand, I took it myself as a, as a vote of confidence in my abilities as his commander. David knew my capabilities, he knew very well that I could get the job done for him when it came to commanding our army. The king knew that I was well and truly able to carry out our battle plan successfully on behalf of him and on behalf of all of Israel. One evening, after a long journey, one of the king's messengers rode into camp on horseback. He requested an urgent meeting with me, and I was able to meet with him straight away. The messenger informed me that Uriah the Hittite was to be sent back to Jerusalem to the king's palace. 
The timing wasn't great as we were engaged in warfare, but I commanded Uriah to return with the messenger back to Jerusalem, as David had said. There, he met with David, and he asked him several things. David asked Uriah how I was doing. He asked how his people were doing on the battlefield. He asked, of course, how the war was going. And I mean, don't get me wrong, these were all really great questions to ask, but why send Uriah all the way back to have those questions answered? Why take one of my best men from the battlefield right there and then to answer these questions and give this military report? Why not just ask the messenger to relay this information? Anyhow, David then told Uriah to return to his own house. Head on home, refresh yourself, spend time with your family, rest up. He even left a gift for him at his house. But Uriah never went home. You see, there's this unspoken code that us soldiers have. While our brothers are on the battlefield, we will not rest. And so, Uriah didn't return to the comforts of his own dwelling that night, not even just for one moment. Instead, that very night, Uriah chose to sleep at the door of the king's palace with his fellow servants. And I've got to say, that's an honourable move, and one that I fully expected a man like Uriah to follow through with. Here is our army, in the midst of battle, camping in an open field, and Uriah was not about to disengage from that battlefront mindset. While our brothers are on the battlefield, we will not rest, physically, emotionally, or mentally. But you know what the really interesting thing was? It's the thing that I just can't seem to put my finger on is that Uriah's decision to stay at home, it didn't seem to please my king. David actually seemed frustrated when he learnt that Uriah did not return back home. So, what he did was he told him to stay in Jerusalem for a further two days, and then head back to, to the battlefield. Now, I know Uriah would have wanted to leave right then and there, He wanted to be back with his brothers fighting in battle. He was ready to return, but the king's orders were the king's orders, and so he remained in Jerusalem for a further two days. That very night, David put on a feast, and he invited Uriah to join him at the banquet table. I've had the pleasure of indulging in these feasts at the banquet table. All of the best pickings from the season's harvest go straight to the king's palace. The choicest of grains turned into the freshest of breads. A delicate quail, season's hair, and every seasonal fruit that you can imagine for dessert. I can imagine Uriah would have felt very uncomfortable indulging in the banquet that was set before him while his fellow soldiers camped in close quarters and ate sparingly from their ration packs. And then to top it all off, Uriah was given by David the best wine in all of the kingdom to drink. The whole night, Uriah's goblet was never empty. He drank and he drank 
and he drank. And Uriah came away from that table very drunk. But he slept it off at the door of the palace again. Talk about a commitment to Yahweh's war against the Ammonites. That was admirable. While this was all happening at David's royal palace, on the battlefield, we continued to occupy that fort that contr- and control Rabba's water supply. And the city's occupants were getting desperate. It had been several days for them without any water, and they were weakening by the hour. I knew from much experience that a city of Rabba's size could only last several days without the water that they could then get. And so I'd carefully planned my attack to take place on the city the very next morning. It was while we were waiting for that morning sun to come up that Uriah returned to camp. He rode into camp with what looked like a sense of guilt over him. Guilt that he felt from not being with us. A soldier taken from his duty to his battalion. But once he shook that, it was clear that he was ready to re-engage on the battlefront. He inquired as to our current position and he asked many different questions about the impending siege of Rabbah and what was required. And I was impatient answering him, but knowing that he was one of our best soldiers, I wanted to update him on our current position. And when I had finished doing so, Uriah reached into his satchel and he pulled out a scroll, handwritten by the king. I slowly unrolled the scroll with Uriah in my presence and I read the words off the page to myself. Set Uriah in the forefront of the hardest fighting and then draw back from him so that he may be struck down and die. There it was, in writing before my very own eyes. Uriah's own death warrant, delivered by Uriah's own hand, written by King David himself. What had transpired back in Jerusalem between David and Uriah that warranted such severe action? Had Uriah betrayed his king? Uriah was an upright man, a man of noble character, a good man. And yet the death warrant had been delivered into my hands. There's no time for a military leader such as myself to be uh, weakened in thought by a whole bunch of what-ifs and maybes. My king has clearly got good reasons for his actions. I know David very well. I trust his thinking. I trust his planning. I follow his lead. And so an order is an order. And that was that, a very clear, direct order from my king, to whom my servitude is to, first and foremost. I knew what I had to do, and I knew that I was the best person to carry it out. The next day, we besieged the city. Rabba fell, and as it was happening, I assigned Uriah to an area where there were many valiant men. I ordered an entire unit of men to attack the outer wall of the city. 
it was basically a suicide mission. The Ammonites had the high ground and we were sitting ducks down below. Their archers shot at us, picking us off one by one. And on the ground, we fought off many that opposed us, but in the process, I saw several of my men fall. This was the part of the plan that I disliked. Knowing that we're at a disadvantage from the very beginning of the attack, I found it hard to watch the unit fall. Failure was not an option. You see, let's face it, by that stage, I had grown far too used to military success. But then my heartbeat began to quicken. I noticed Uriah out of the corner of my eye. He overpowered several opponents and he was advancing his position. As a skilled swordsman, there was no doubt in my mind that Uriah was there doing his utmost best for his king while he was on the battlefield. He was dedicated, committed, mighty in many ways. But all of that might was not enough to come away on top. And I watched as Uriah fell to the ground, fatally wounded, before he was slain by a foot soldier. Just like that, I had then completed my task that was set before me in that scroll written by my king. And a sense of success again came over me in that moment. I came away from that encounter knowing I'd done my utmost best for David. In fact, you know what? I was proud to have played my part for my king. My loyalty, it belongs to him after all. You know, I know my, where my place is in the chain of command, just like my soldiers know where their place is. Submitting to authority is very important after all. And so I wasted no time in sending a messenger to tell David all about the news of our fighting. The messenger spoke about how the men within Rava had gained an advantage over us, but then we managed to drive them back to the entrance of the gate. He spoke of those who were lost that day in the battlefield. And I was very careful in that message to inform them to say and instruct to tell David that his servant Uriah the Hittite had died just as David had instructed. I had again achieved success in doing my king's bidding. It wasn't long then before I heard back from David. His mess my messenger returned with words from him, imploring me to not let this matter displease me, for the sword devours one as well as the other. Fair enough, the sword does devour one as well as the other. It just sometimes does so in different ways. I mean, I am living proof of that. It was justifiable for David that Uriah, a good man, should die. And with his words, I was encouraged by my king to not let this matter displease me or be of any concern to me. Very well then, I've got to say, you know, I was happy to hear back from David, even though I was already satisfied with the work that I had done for him. It sounds like uh, that was a knock and that my king is ready to see me now.
What can I say? That was a meeting like no other. I can't believe it. I think I'm in shock. I just met with David. Gee, it was good to see him. But I also just met with the prophet Nathan. I've never been in a room alone with just the two of them. It was so intense. But it's clear to me that God just sent Nathan the prophet on his behalf to speak to David. I only had a minute to greet my great king when Nathan walked into the room. And he didn't even greet me. He didn't look at me. He just walked straight up to David. And I was surprised to hear the first thing that came out of Nathan's mouth was a parable. Nathan told David the story of a rich man who lived in a city. The man owned many flocks and herds of livestock. And in that same city with the rich man, there was a poor man who had nothing but one little ewe lamb. That poor man loved that ewe lamb like it was his own child. He cared for it and looked after it. A traveller came along to be a guest at the rich man's house and to prepare dinner for him. But the rich man was unwilling to take one of his own livestock, one of his own lambs, and prepare it for dinner. So instead, the rich man got the poor man's one ewe lamb and instead prepared it for the meal. As soon as Nathan had finished telling this story, David let us know how upset he was. He announced his royal judgment on the rich man. And my king is a fair and a a just king. After hearing about the way that the poor man was treated, David burned with anger. He exclaimed that that rich man surely deserved to die because he had no pity. And what I heard next confused me greatly. Nathan pointed his finger directly at David and he said to him, You are that man. What? Excuse me? David is the rich man in the story who deserves to die? Why would Nathan say that? Nathan then continued to direct his words directly at David. This is what the Lord, the God of Israel says, he said. I anointed you king over Israel and delivered you from the hand of Saul. I gave your master's house to you and your master's wives into your arms. I gave you all Israel and Judah. And if this had been too little, I would have given you even more. Why did you despise the word of the Lord by doing what is evil in his eyes? You struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword and took his wife to be your own. You killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. Now, therefore, 
the sword will never depart from your house, because you despised me and took the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your own. I just can't believe it. I, I refuse to believe it. I, why would my king do this? David is an upright man of noble character, a righteous man. And now to hear that he had taken Uriah's wife Bathsheba for himself. And while he was miles away from her, engaged on the battlefield nonetheless, after everything that God had already given him, a flourishing kingdom, the opulence of royalty, the promise that his house would endure forever and ever. After all of this, David saw what was not rightfully his to have in Bathsheba. And he still went ahead and he took her. Now it makes sense to me. But to get me to cover his tracks by killing Uriah, I mean, I feel so betrayed. I was loyal to my king the entire time. I listened to him alone. I I obeyed him alone. I, I thought I was doing the right thing in following orders. But in following his orders, I've been complicit with evil. I've enabled David. And of all the limited mistakes that I've made on the battlefield, my biggest one in receiving that message with Uriah's death warrant sealed within was that I didn't even stop to question David at the time of receiving that letter. And in doing so, I've helped him cover up what was morally wrong. I've obeyed man rather than God. David will have to live with the words from the, Nathan, from the prophet Nathan saying that the sword will never depart from his house. And furthermore, what David did in secret, God promised that he will do in broad daylight before all of Israel. What does this mean exactly? It's a scary thought and not one that I really want to entertain right now. To be honest, I'm not sure how David is going to handle all of this moving forward. The whole situation seems utterly hopeless for David. I mean, how do you even begin to respond to this? But then David spoke up. And he said these words. I have sinned against the Lord. And you know what? In that moment, I saw the genuine look of sorrow that was over his face. I heard the heartfelt remorse that David had for his actions. I was personally worried at the same time in that moment that David would use his power as king to put the blame of the murder of Uriah on me solely. But you know what? He didn't do that. He didn't even attempt to place the blame on anyone else. He didn't try to dodge the accusation. And I could see the misery that was building inside of him because of the guilt that David owned. David made a confession, which is huge because he's a king. He does not have to confess. 
I've heard of other kings who have done just as much, if not worse, than David. And the prophets in their courts had no right to deny the king his royal privileges. I mean, to be honest, a king like David could have just in his position had Nathan killed and and ordered in a new prophet to say only good things about his king. But David confessed. David repented of his actions. He saw this as the right way forward, the only way to deal with the situation. Right there and then, Nathan spoke back. He answered David. And his answer must have been the most reassuring thing that he's ever heard. The Lord has taken away your sin. You are not going to die. God's forgiveness and His mercy was upon David in that moment. His abuse of power in taking Bathsheba, in using my loyalty to his advantage, in murdering Uriah, Uriah, the lies, the deception, everything that followed, all of his sin, it was all taken away, gone, completely removed. But it wasn't just him, because when I heard those words, I felt it inside too. You know, my decision to show absolute loyalty and obey my king's command without even pausing to consult my Lord God, that was my tragic fault. Like David, I have every right to suffer the consequences of my sin. And there will be consequences and and human scars will remain. But I know that I've been forgiven by God just as David has. I have so many things to ponder, as I'm sure you do as well. But for now, I must get back to my army.